the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Welcome to the show. What a great day in America. Listen, guys, we all need to give ourselves a pat on the back because basically we carried Florida for Trump. And people don't realize how important our votes are in this uh, Tampa Bay area all the way up towards Orlando. But if you go to Real Clear Politics and look at the counties and how they voted in Florida, Hillsborough went Democratic, but Pinellas, Pasco, Hernando, Polk, Hardy, Manatee, Sarasota, all the counties around Hillsborough that you and I reach through the radio voted for Trump. And so those numbers overwhelmed whatever numbers there were in Hillsborough County. So we can be very proud. Now, Hillary lost the state by about 120,000 votes. There were 67 counties that voted for Trump that went Republican and nine that went Democratic. And, of course, the nine are going to be the big city areas, the uh, Gainesville area where the University of Florida is, and the a few all-majority black counties in the northern part of the state on the Georgia border. So we've done a good job. We did our job, and all of us can be proud of what we have done. Now we've got to hold this guy's feet to the fire and make sure that he does what he says he's going to do. And I think the first and foremost task for him is the Supreme Court, of course, SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. We need to make sure that we get a person in there to fill the conservative seat that shares our views, and hopefully he will deliver someone who we can all agree upon. Of course, the left is not going to agree on anything. By the way, I'm, I was tickled pink by uh, uh, Hillary blaming the head of the FBI, Comey, saying that she lost because of him. And we were talking about this before the show, Bill and I. And, you know, it's just so incredible. And this is so telling about how the Clintons view themselves that nothing is ever their fault. They'll always find someone else to blame. And it's this godlike attitude that they have that turns so many people off. The idea that we're better than you, we know what to do for you, and we're going to take care of you. And you know what? We don't need you, Clintons. And I hope that this is the end of the dynasty. I know we've got uh, Chelsea coming up at 
right now she seems to be busy making babies and taking care of family. So we'll see what happens there. So we are 860 AM, The Answer, and you can reach us on your computer at 860AMTheAnswer.com. This is Talk Radio Interactive. I'm at 877 969 8600. That's 877 969 8600. And feel free to call anytime during the show and give your take on the big win, the history making event. And we'll have some fun today. While we're waiting for callers to call in and share their feelings on the election, I wanted to touch on a few things that I would like to see the Trump presidency tackled immediately, if not sooner. And by the way, we have earned the right to be heard. We delivered Florida. We gave Trump the Florida victory. And for that reason, we need to be heard and we need to be catered to in our desire to change our country through the legal system as well as through the courts. Again, the Supreme Court nominees, he's got to move quickly. We're going to have to preserve Medicaid for the time being. And this program is one that is a a joint uh, effort by the states and the federal government, and there's a dollar-to-dollar matching kind of program with the federal government kicking in a dollar for whatever the states kick in. Those states that bought into Obamacare got more per capita, so they may have gotten a buck fifty for every dollar that the state raised and put into the Medicaid system. You say, well, why do we have to preserve Medicaid? Isn't this just one of those giveaway programs? Well, I think that, first of all, we can't be inhumane. We have to consider that there are people out there, and there are, and I see them in my practice all the time, who really don't have much of anything. And it's not always their fault. There are people who have had injuries. There are people who have been born with debilitating diseases like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, There are people who have inherited disorders. There are people who are elderly and have worked all their lives, and they get their Social Security, and they get their Medicare, but they can't afford their medications, and they don't have anything else to show for it. So we're going to have to preserve Medicaid and try and figure out a way to handle this. This is a big part of the state budget here. We talked about this last year. This is over a third of the state budget is Medicaid and the CHIPS program, which is a Medicaid-like program for kids. So we're going to have to show our magnanimity. We're going to have to show our Judeo-Christian values and take care of the people that are at the lowest end of the economic spectrum and can't take care of themselves. And you say, well, what's it cost? On average in Florida, it's about $5,000 per Medicaid patient. But we have to break that down because you've got kids that are in grade school and high school that may not even see a doctor for a decade. They may go in for uh, an immunization and a physical exam for 150 bucks, And then you have people like the ones that I take care of at Jacaranda Nursing Home who have had major head injuries or have major psychiatric injuries, and they're completely debilitated. Uh, some of them are locked up because they're, they're violent, they're out of control. And 
we do have some responsibility to care for the people in our society who have major psychiatric problems and major medical problems as well as head injuries and automobile accidents and strokes and they don't have anywhere to go they don't have any money they don't have any resources they don't have any champions so society has to become their champion and you say well why do we keep all these people alive that brings us to another point that I want to talk about this morning and I hope someone on the Trump team is listening and will carry this forward uh, Bill and I were talking before the show how quickly the politicians forget those who helped them. But we're going to stay on top of these guys. We're going to keep them headed in the right direction, keep their feet to the fire. So let's talk a little bit about the reforms that we need in medicine, which are very, very important, not only in terms of controlling costs, but also in terms of pushing forward a health care system that is second to none in the world, and don't let anybody tell you any different. We never had a broken health care system. There may have been people who were underinsured or not insured, but well, we still have that thanks to Obamacare. People can't afford it. So we're going to have to undo Obamacare and institute some health care reforms. Along with this, we need tort reforms. Tort is the branch of law that deals with civil suits and civil matters. There's two broad branches of the law. The criminal law, which is everything from murder down to traffic tickets. And then there is the civil law, which is you've damaged me. Your tree that you planted has dropped blueberries all over my yard and you've killed off my green berries, and I'm going to sue you for the damages of resodding my yard. And that's, that's what the civil side does, and it's in the Constitution. And there's a dollar amount, a minimum dollar amount in the Constitution, which has never been changed, by the way. And so the civil side is the side that the trial lawyers use to go after doctors, to go after big business, to go after the pharmaceutical companies, and some of the suits are justified and some are not. But it's in our system. It's in our Constitution. We're not going to get rid of civil suits. But we can and we must set some limits on the amount of the awards that can be given to a plaintiff who has been injured. And this is a tough thing for the Democrats to swallow because they see this as a way of redistributing the wealth, which it is. It's a way of taking money out of the doctors' pockets and the hospitals and the big businesses and putting it into theirs. So the redistribution is a little bit of a myth. Most of the trial lawyers are getting 30 to 40 percent of the awards, plus the cost of depositions and copying and all that sort of sort of stuff. So it's a it's a little bit of a rigged system that benefits primarily the attorneys. Now, yes, there are people who have been injured by doctors or by drug companies through negligence, and they deserve some assistance. They're disabled. I don't have a problem with that. But what we need to do is make sure that the damages, the amount of money that is awarded to a plaintiff, is kept to just their 
monetary damages. And you say, well, what are monetary damages? Well, let's say that uh, the anesthesiologist fell asleep while you were having a procedure, your oxygen levels dropped very low, and you ended up having significant brain damage and you're no longer able to work. Let's say you're a guy 35, so you've still got 20 to 30 years of career life ahead of you and you're making 60 grand a year. Well, you're going to take that 60 grand times the expected lifespan of your job from 35 on and we'll just use 20. Uh, so that's what 1.2 million right there. And that needs to be awarded with, of course, the uh, inflation-adjusted numbers, and as well any health care that is required. Our system allows this. It's okay, and it's something that we need to continue with and maintain, but we need to do it in a way that there is no other unnecessary monies allotted to plaintiffs, such as punitive damages, Let's say it's a doctor who's had a couple of problems before. And so the plaintiff says, the plaintiff's attorney says, well, you know what? We need to teach this doctor a lesson. And so we want another $2 million in, in damages as punitive money. Well, that's nonsense. Let the state boards take care of that. And if we got a guy that's, or a gal that's not doing a good job, then they need to be reined in by the state boards. And, of course, that's going to require that we give the state board some more muscle. What about emotional damages? Well, the wife says, he was my lover, my friend, and now I have to take care of him, and I'm distraught for the rest of my life, and I want a couple of million. I don't think that we should do that either. We need to make it just the actual hard damages, the cost of taking care of the person, as well as the uh, cost of the money's lost by them not being able to work or do the job. And that's going to have to be an integral part of any health care reform. Now, you say, well, why are we spending $5,000 a year per Medicaid patient? That seems like a lot of money, doesn't it? Well, it is, and it's skewed at the extreme ends of the age brackets, it's the neonatals, the newborn babies that are in the intensive care unit for extended periods of time that require lots and lots of money. And also the old and debilitated, like the patients I take care of at Jacaranda and a lot of the patients in Pinellas County, we're one of the oldest counties percentage-wise in the world. So we see a lot of elderly people. And it's a lot of it is at the end of life. And so we have to have some mechanism whereby we can begin to rein in the ungodly expenditures that we put out for people who are not salvageable at the end of life. And it's not always old people, although a lot of times it is. But I had a patient, I'll call him David, years ago, and he had had trauma to his belly, and he had lost a big chunk of his small bowel. Now, the small bowel is important because that's where the food stuff, after it's broken down in the stomach and by the digestive enzymes in the first part of the small bowel, that's where the food stuff is absorbed. The, the glucose, the sugar, 
the amino acids, the fatty acids, the vitamins and minerals, and all the things that we need to sustain life. And so he was chronically malnourished. And along with his being malnourished, his immune system was affected. He got tuberculosis, so he then had lung disease. He had to be treated for that. And he was a chronically sick, completely disabled guy in his early 30s. And we tried to get him to allow us to put in a central line into a big vein so we could give him some artificial food. We, we call it parenteral hyperalimentation, which just means that it goes into a vein and it's a, a big whopping dose of what you need to, to live. It's a basic amino acids and fatty acids, sugars, uh, vitamins and minerals, and it's in a form that can be used by the body immediately. Not without complications, that's for sure, but he kept refusing and he wouldn't stay in the hospital when he would come down with pneumonia. Once he felt better, he signed himself out AMA. Well, a few years ago, he ended up in the intensive care unit in respiratory failure with a bad case of pneumonia. And he had an, an arrest, his heart stopped, and we brought him back course the family is there and they're concerned he's a young man he's got a couple of kids and a wife his parents are there and they're very catholic vietnamese from south vietnam originally and there's a a lot of christian or there was a lot of christianity in south vietnam and a lot of catholics and we kept him on the ventilator and used all kinds of fancy equipment to keep him going and I knew, I knew from my years of experience as well as from his lack of response after the arrest where he had decreased blood flow to his brain that he was not going to make it. There was just no way. He didn't have the lung reserve. The brain was gone. He didn't have a gut to absorb food. And the family kept begging me to keep trying, which I did because he was young, and I thought that that was perhaps the appropriate way to approach it. But I started hanging crepe as well. Uh, for those of you who have not been to an Irish wake and don't know the Irish customs, they would hang black crepe in the living room before they set the body out for the wake, the party, the uh, uh, visitation, whatever you want to call it. And so those of us who grew up in parts of the country that had large Irish populations, we use the term hanging crepe to mean that it's not looking good, he's not going to make it. And I was talking to the wife and talking to the parents and trying to get them to come to the realization that this was the end of the line. The guy was not going to make it, and I felt bad for the family, but that's the way it was. And so I did that for five to seven days and got them to the point where they were ready to hear a little bit more than perhaps they would have at the beginning of the, of the hospitalization. And I told them I could not continue on taking care of him and doing the things that I was doing because it was cruel. It was cruel to do the things we were doing to this guy when there was no hope of survival, that he was going to die once we took him off of his life support, off the ventilator, off the IV drips, and all the things that we were giving him that kept him going. A lot of tears and gnashing of teeth and wailing, of course as you would expect for a young man. And they asked me if we could wait until the next day so they could have the priest come in and 
uh, give the last rites. That's one of the sacraments in the Catholic Church. The priest comes in and says prayers and anoints the the patient or the person and commends their spirit to heaven. Kind of a, a little way of saying, hey, God, I got somebody coming up there, and he's a good guy. I know him, and please let him in. So we waited for that, and uh, then we took with all the family there and the priest and kids and everybody, we took him off of the ventilator and off of the, the other support systems that we had going. And, of course, he died rather quickly, within an hour. Now, I, I say this, and I bring this up because it is an example of where we are spending tremendous amounts of money on situations that are absolutely hopeless. And I'm not saying that we should have death committees that will go around and say, well, this person should live and that person should not, based upon emotions. But I think that we do need, as part of health care reform, an ability for physicians to make decisions about hopeless situations and to have the power to stop the life support. In Florida, we've got a complex legal system. And it makes it difficult for doctors to make those decisions, partly out of ignorance of the law and partly because the law is not well thought out. In Florida, it's tough to win a suit for wrongful death when it's an older person who's no longer working. The instances and cases where you could possibly win a case if you sued a doctor in the hospital would be if there was a dependent child at home, such as a, a 30-year-old with Down syndrome or a grandchild that the grandparent had adopted. Then you could sue or the estate could sue on behalf of that dependent person at home because the person who is in the hospital, the older person and who is dying or died, was the sole caretaker and financial support for that dependent person. The system is built so that people are taken care of if, through no fault of their own, they end up without any support systems, and, and that should stand. But there are a lot of older people that it's difficult for the families to make a decision, and it's tough for the doctors to understand how to approach this. I've worked out my own system over the years, and I tell people, if the patient has a living will and a durable power of attorney, by the way, everybody needs to get one so that you're not stuck on a ventilator, so that there's somebody that can speak for you if you're no longer capable of doing that and you're in the intensive care unit. But these people that are obviously at the end of life and that we're just keeping alive for the family or because there's no power of attorney, or there's no sp spokesperson, there's no guardian that has the legal authority to say, stop, don't do anything more, let them go to heaven. We have a lot of cases that are not like that. We have a lot of cases. We just had a patient in the hospital. She had had a liver transplant, late 60s, early 70s. She had it a decade ago, and she got an extra 10 years of life out of it but then she started to reject the liver that she had received before. And that happens. Our bodies will see that as foreign material and attack it. And she'd been all the, on all the right medications, and even with the medications to suppress that response 
by our own body to foreign tissue, that is, to make antibodies and to attack that organ. You can still, late in the game, reject that organ, even on all the medications that suppress your body's natural tendencies to get rid of that thing, get it out of there. It's a weed. And we talked to the family. We talked to them, and the daughters were there, and they said they agreed, but that there was a husband who had the power of attorney. He was a spokesperson, and he didn't want to let go. He was in a nursing home, and I'm not sure how competent he was. We never were able to talk to him. And there was another daughter who was also involved. She finally showed up, and when we explained things to her, she realized that it was hopeless. And we kept this poor woman going for three or four weeks at a tremendous cost to you and me and to society at large. And it was hopeless. It was hopeless. And the woman was scared, and I talked to her, and I said, I understand that. I understand you're afraid. And she was in and out of consciousness. Because when the liver fails, we build up toxic products in our system that alter our consciousness. But we finally got the permission from the family because they did have a durable power of attorney and the patient did have a living will. And we tried everything. We even called over to Tampa General, the transplant center, and asked if they would take the patient and see if there was anything they could do. And, of course, there's not anything they can do either. They would not have operated on the patient. She was not a candidate for another liver. She was elderly, debilitated, bleeding, because she wasn't making her clotting factors. Her liver wasn't working. And it cost a lot of money, a lot of money that should not have been spent. We should have had the power, the doctors, to make the decision that this was a hopeless situation and to not treat and to keep the patient comfortable with what we had and what we could give them, whether it was narcotics or Valium, Anavan, whatever it took to keep the patient comfortable and let nature take its course. And how would could we do that? Well, we could certainly have the primary care physician involved as well as two physicians who are not involved in the case who are consulted. So you have three people in a hospital that agree that this is a hopeless situation and there's no reason to go on. There's no reason to continue and spend this kind of money because it's not benefiting the patient and it's harming the rest of society. And it's giving the families false hope. And so as part of the tort reform, we need to make sure that we have in place some safeguards for physicians, that they be held harmless for making these decisions, and that these decisions should be made. They should be made at the extremes of life. Not only is it cost-effective, but it's humane. It's ridiculous to keep some of these poor people alive because of the families or the laws in the states or whatever it is. It just makes no sense, and we've got to change that as part of tort reform. So we need to have damages awarded just for hard losses. We need to have the ability to say, 
this is a hopeless situation. We're not going to keep this patient in the intensive care unit for another three or four weeks at a cost of $1,500 to $5,000 a day, depending on how much you do. It's a lot of money, and there's no reason. We need to be able to make decisions that are in the best interest of everybody, including society. And you say, well, doctors should take care of the patients. I agree with you. And I don't practice medicine with my eye on the dollar bill. I think that the physicians who do that miss a lot of pathology. But I'm also realistic. I know when, when I'm, I'm whipped. I know when the patient's not going to make it. I know when it's time to move on. And that's part of the intelligence and the art of medicine. So we should do that. We need to have some tort reform. And I hope that the Republicans will do that. The problem is, is that a lot of the people in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, are lawyers. So let's get the Supreme Court beefed up. Let's address Medicaid immediately. Let's disassemble most of Obamacare. There are some things that should be kept, and I agree with Trump on those matters. We need to aid the states that are the most dependent on the federal dollars that have the poorest population, like Mississippi, and they get a disproportionate amount of money for Medicaid patients. We have to help them figure out a way to pick up more of the support for their state residents. I think we should go state by state with some federal assistance, but not the a tremendous amount of federal assistance that we have seen. We need to encourage pay-as-you-go. I don't think that most people need a comprehensive health care insurance plan. I don't see it. We've got Medicare and Medicare secondaries, and most of the care, most of the expenditures are on the elderly population anyway. So what about day-to-day medical care. I mean, you got a 12-year-old in school, they need a shot. They need an immunization. It's time for their booster. And so you take them in, and the pediatrician does a a cursory exam, and you get your immunizations up to date, and the schools do hearing and vision checks, and there's always the health department if you can't get in to see your pediatrician to get the immunizations. And it costs 150 bucks to go to the pediatrician And the kid may not see a doctor for another four or five years. What do you need to pay $6,000, $8,000, $10,000 a year for a family health care plan for a young family that's generally healthy when it ain't going to cost you anywhere near that? It just is not going to cost that kind of money. Pay as you go. We need to have a pay as you go system. We've got to dismantle this mandatory health care provision of Obamacare, both for employers and for individuals. My son's 21 years old next year. And if he goes out on his own and he goes to work and he's in good health, what's he need to carry a huge policy for? It's, it's a financial burden, and it does nothing but benefit government, bureaucracies, insurance companies, 
and it doesn't benefit those of us who are middle-aged and healthy or kids that are healthy. It just doesn't make sense. So we need to disassemble that mandatory part of Obamacare, and we need to have some price transparency. And this is something I would like to do. If anybody's interested, you can throw in some money with me, and we'll start a website. We'll call it Price Transparency Portal. That's Price Transparency Portal. And what we'll do is we will have a team of people who, on a daily basis, query hospitals, drug companies, pharmacies, insurers, anybody and everybody who has anything to do with health care, durable medical equipment, mobility chairs, and post those prices so that they're available to all. And we can sell advertising because it will be a tremendous success to any number of people to make it pay for itself. And this is something that Trump talked about, which is something I've believed in for a long time. We need transparency in the pricing of health care. We need to know what so-and-so charges for a hip replacement versus the other so-and-so. So if Dr. X in the hospital that he goes to charges five to 10000 and the guy down the street, Dr. Y, at the nicer hospital charges forty to 50000 and you're on a budget, well, that's easy to figure out. You know, that, that's easy. You're going to go where, as long as they're comparable care, you're going to go to the cheaper place. I mean, it, it, it's, it's basic economics. It doesn't take a brain to figure this out. And we would not have all of this. We wouldn't have these problems in health care and in a number of other areas if the government had not gotten involved. Because once the government gets involved, then it gets all mucked up. Then there's multiple hands in the pot, drives up the price, and it makes it difficult for you and me to understand and know where to go for the best care for the least amount of money. I mean, for God's sakes, we've got the Internet now. You can Google Home Depot to see what they're charging for a hammer. You can go to Amazon and see what they're charging. You can even type in 20-ounce claw hammer, compare, and it'll pop up a bunch of different prices from different stores in different locations. You can go to Lowe's. You can do all this just sitting at your desk, sitting at home in the kitchen sitting in the airport with your portable or your iPad or whatever. Even your cell phone now. I just asked my cell phone who was the fifth president of the United States, and it answers it right away. We have all of this technology in place. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever why we can't apply this to make health care more effective and more cost-efficient. And we should. And we must. And this administration best heed this because it's going to have to do more than just appoint some Supreme Court justices and shore up security and the military because there are a lot of people that, out there that are sitting there saying well yeah we're all for all those things but what are you going to do about this health care problem that's a big one that's a big one you say well what if I have a car accident, and I'm in the hospital for six weeks. Well, we can certainly have catastrophic programs. We can certainly have catastrophic insurance, health insurance plans where you don't have to pay five or ten 
thousand dollars a year for a plan where it can cost you one or two thousand dollars and that will cover expenses say over twenty five thousand dollars or twenty thousand or whatever whatever we can work out with the actuarians and the corporate moguls and the government and the consumers you and me and we can make this work and we can greatly reduce the cost of health care just by a few simple things tort reform Let's make sure Medicaid's running properly so the bottom end of the spectrum gets health care. Let's disassemble Obamacare, most of it. Let's have price transparency. Let's have catastrophic health care plans for those who are seven years old to 45, 50 years old because they don't require that much health care. We can even have administrative judges to intervene when there are lawsuits against doctors and hospitals, save court costs, decrease the glamour of going to court and winning big judgments. The judgments should not be publicized because then it becomes a lottery. and make this work, which we can do. We can do this. And I think that with Mr. Trump in the White House, it's going to happen. And as Bill and I said, if it doesn't happen, we're going to kick some butt. We're going to kick some butt. Well, again, I'm at 877-969-8600, And if you want to call and give a little cheer, a little hoorah for the win, you're more than welcome to. I'm going to go grab a cup of joe. You with me, Bill? All right, my man. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. New Zealand authorities say a powerful earthquake has generated a tsunami with the first wave hitting the South Island. The Department of Civil Defense has warned people all along the country's east coast to move to higher ground. The magnitude 7.8 quake struck just after midnight near the city of Christchurch. President-elect Donald Trump on the minds of top European Union officials meeting in Brussels today. EU foreign ministers are gathering to discuss the impact of the American election. Dozens of wildfires in the south, many of them arsons, have prompted evacuations in three states. Those evacuations have been ordered in Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. And the deadly attacks on the Bagram Air Base and the German consulate in Afghanistan have prompted precautions at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Officials there say they are closing the embassy for today. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727 
Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. You know texting while driving is dangerous. That's not new information, yet most people admit to doing it anyway. Drivers are 23 times more likely to be involved in a car accident while texting. Know the facts and wait to text. The danger is real and it applies to you. Auto Owners Insurance, the no problem people. Information provided by Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. Darren Vermost and Vermost Insurance, your auto owner's agent, is the official insurance agent of the home team. Darren has been helping home team listeners for years, and he can help you too. You can call Darren for a free no-obligation quote at 727-748-2886 or visit them on the web at vermost.com. That's V-E-R-M-O-S-T dot com. Vermost Insurance is your one stop for auto, home, life, and all of your insurance needs. They serve the entire Tampa Bay area. 727-748-2886. We turn your broken glass into cold, hard cash. Auto Glass America. That's right, Tampa Bay. If you have a cracked windshield and full coverage insurance, they can install a new one for free and buy back your old one for up to $100 cash on the spot. Call 813-96-GLASS. That's 813-96-G-L-A-S-S. 813-96-GLASS. We turn your broken glass into cold, hard cash. Auto Glass America. We'll have a nice day today with periods of clouds and sunshine and a high of 82, then cloudy most of the time this evening, low 63. We'll have a mix of clouds and sunshine tomorrow, high 77. Then Tuesday, we'll have sunshine and a few clouds, high on Tuesday, 76. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM 860, The Answer. Back to the Smarty Pants Dance. Yeah. Let's do it, baby. Just love it. All the guys in the hospital are all coming up to me. Who do you think's going to win? Trump. Who do you think's going to win? Who do you think's going to win? Trump. 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 Well, even the administrator. Can you believe it? I mean, we were having a meeting completely unrelated to politics of just medicine and the hospital and jobs and positions and all that sort of thing. And as I'm walking out the door, she looks at me with earnest, sincere, concerned eyes and says, who do you think's going to win? I said, Trump's going to win. She said, how do you know? And I told her all the reasons, and they all came to pass. Health problems, legal problems, accountability, trustworthiness. And I told her that a lot of people were not angry. They just disagreed with the left, and they agreed with Trump and we voted that way. And, you know, I hear the, the liberal press saying that it was angry, blue-collar white males that brought him in. That is 
just so much. That's a load of horse manure. That's baloney. Hillary only got 5% more of the female vote than Trump did. And yes, I am a white male. Well, a little Jewish blood in me, if you want to consider that non-white. I don't know if people consider that anymore. But I am a white male. But I'm certainly not blue-collar. I'm well-educated, make a good living, have a lot of interesting things to say and think about, and I'm friendly with everybody from the guys that work in the kitchen to politicos like I had on the radio over the past few months. And I can't see how anybody can say that I am an angry blue-collar male. One of the doctors, by the way, he's a Muslim and very fundamentalistic and not my kind of guy. We were sitting at the lunch table one day, and Trump was on. This was during the primaries, and and then the commentators were talking, and he said, they're just a bunch of rednecks that are going to vote for him. I said, well, I'm voting for him. I like him. It was back in May, I believe, June. And you know what? I decided not to speak to the man anymore. I really don't have anything to say to him. Am I angry? No. But, of course, I just don't want to be insulted. That's, that's just self-defense. That's emotional protection. Why should I be insulted? I didn't insult him. I didn't insult anybody over this. Well, maybe my friend Nick, because I know he voted for uh, Obama the first time. I don't know about the second time. And he's always trying to play like he's uh, a conservative. And I know he's fairly conservative, but I also think that emotionally he went for tr- for Obama the first time. Now he's in the Trump camp. He gave me a big handshake the other day. All of this makes me wonder if there's any any cognizance, any awareness, any meaningful insight into how a lot of the country feels by these left-wing loonies. I just, I don't get it. I just don't get it. How can you not understand how important a lot of these issues are to the majority of Americans? At any rate, let me get back to the healthcare system, and I wanted to touch on the price transparency a little bit more. Price transparency is a way of showing everybody exactly what they're paying for and what they're getting in health care, and it compares and contrasts all the different providers of, say, a service like replacing a hip, and gives us an opportunity to do a little shopping, which is what we should be doing. This is the American way. We should be shopping, and if we don't like something, we should be boycotting, and a lot of this art has been lost, which is unfortunate. But price transparency might have the biggest effect of anything that comes out of the health care reform because of its information, its ability to help people control the cost of their health care and go for a lower cost but similar service. And more and more people are becoming increasingly curious and aware of the cost of health care. And they want to know where the money's going. And I think that Obamacare is going to 
be one of the major factors that will push this forward. And I said this even before Obamacare came in. I said, we're going to morph into a self-paced system for a large part of the population because we won't be able to afford all this nonsense. But a lot of people still don't realize the cost of their health care, and they want to know. Let's make it easy. Let's make it so that they can know. It's a cost-lowering tool. It's tremendous. Rising costs can't be controlled until the price of, of the items of health care is made available to people, to consumers, and so that we know the price of services being provided to us. And even the experts agree, left and right, that price transparency will help people to have a better understanding and to be more involved in their health care, not only in making the decisions as to what they want and don't want, but making the decision as to who will do that and give that and provide that service to them. It surely makes a difference for me. And I shop. I go to the administrator if I have to come in the hospital for something, and I say, what's going to be better for me, self-pay or billing my Medicare and my Medicare secondary? And he can do the math for me, and these sort of things can be put into uh, websites so that you and I can calculate this without having to sit down with the COO or the CFO of the hospital, the chief financial officer, or the chief operating officer. And according to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a a foundation that does research into health care, it's been around for a while, and I've quoted it in the past, some of their studies, Healthy economists and other experts are convinced that significant cost containment cannot occur without widespread and sustained transparency in provider prices. That's from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We've got a caller on the line. Did I hear that? Ian, come on, buddy. What you got for me? This is Dr. Bill. I just tuned in at 930, so you might have already addressed my comments, but I'll I'll throw them out to you, and then I'll hang up and listen. Uh, I wanted your opinion on the medical savings account. Number two, portability and transferability, so when you leave your job, your health care plan comes with you. And number three, breaking down this insurance racket monopoly to where there's no competition across state lines. I think we need to nationalize this whole market, just like you were talking about with Home Depot and a hammer. So I'll hang up and listen, okay? Absolutely. And I'm glad you called because those are things that I have been thumping for a long time, and just didn't bring them into this discussion, but now that they're here, let's talk about it. Obama, uh, with some pressure from Congress, did raise the health savings account limits. Initially, they had been lowered, but uh, Congress pitched a fit. And Trump has said he wants them raised to $25,000, which is fine with me. I am all for that. Why on earth should I if I'm healthy, if I'm a 40-year-old guy, why should I be paying tremendous amounts of money for a health insurance plan when I could be saving money by taking that five or $10,000 a year, putting it into a health savings account, and then having a cushion if I have a problem? Here's a quick example. One of my mechanics years ago, he had a heart attack at work. 
They put him in the ambulance, rushed him to Northside Hospital, which is one of the HCA hospitals in the area that does heart work, put a stent in the blocked artery, opened it up, got his heart functioning reasonably well. He came back with about 50%, which is a little bit below normal, but okay. And he had no health insurance, and he got a bill for one hundred twenty dollars or $150,000. So he marched into the chief financial officer's office, and he said, what do you take? I don't have insurance. And they said, well, Medicare would have paid us eighteen to twenty grand." So he settled for about 20000 there. Then he went to the doctors, and he said, what are you charging me, and what can I pay you cash right now to get rid of this bill? It ended up being about 2500 bucks for the whole hospital stay and the stint and the work done by the cardiologist. Guy got away with 22500 He was in his early 40s. I said, wouldn't you have been better to buy insurance? He said, are you kidding? He said, I've been working since I was 18. So it would have been, what, 20, 25 years of insurance, anywhere from five dollars to $10,000 a year. You do the math. You do the math. Yes, I want health savings accounts. Absolutely. I want them maxed out as high as we can go without breaking the, the bank. I want people to be able to save that money into, into a health savings account to be used for emergencies and for health care and for routine things, too, like getting your eyes checked and getting your glasses, getting your prescription lenses. Medicare doesn't pay for that. A lot of these insurance plans no longer pay for, for eye care. They'll pay for trauma. They'll pay for infections or glaucoma. But if you have nearsightedness or farsightedness, they won't pay for it. So absolutely, Ian, I agree with you 100%. Portability, this is something that I was talking about decades ago. I actually had a conversation with one of the senators from Georgia when I was there, when I was in the state, and he said that he thought portability of health, health insurance was an absolute. This is 25, 30 years ago. I mean, we've been fighting this for this long. Absolutely. It needs to be portable. So if you get a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan through work and you leave work, you get the same plan. It goes with you. Absolutely. And for the third item, across state borders, you bet your blue booties. We need to break down all of this nonsense, and that's something that Obamacare actually made worse in compartmentalizing the states and the different types of plans. These guys that passed this bill, the Democrats, you know, it doesn't matter how well-intended they, they were, they had no idea what they were passing. They didn't understand it. They still don't understand the economics of medicine. They still don't understand the economics of of healthcare insurance, and this has got to change. This has got to change. And we've also got to debunk the myth that we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We do not. We have the most expensive bureaucracy in the world, but not the most expensive healthcare system. We need to debunk all of this, and I'm glad that you called in because I tell you, you hit three things on the head that I've been thumping for years. I just am so glad that we have this man in the White House. Let's hold his feet to the fire. And again, everybody give yourself a pat on the back and with an earshot of me because we did it. We took Florida. We gave Trump Florida the I-4 quarter. We beat him up bad. And baby, the White House is ours. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm at 
638-6399-38th Avenue North in St. Petersburg. If you need a doctor, self-pay, whatever, I'm here for you. How much time we got, Bill? 25, we'll put back on the Smarty Pants dance, and we'll go out doing a little a little uh, victory dance here. Woo-hoo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next week. And don't forget to be there for the party. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Can I share your day? Jeffrey Burchard, Burchard Galleries, Antiques and Fine Arts Auctioneers will be on. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.